Boris Johnson has overseen the deaths of 150,000 people during Britain's disastrous COVID crisis. Boris Johnson's hard Brexit deal risks breaking up the United Kingdom. And the habit of Johnson's ministers of doling out multi-million pound contracts to their mates has landed the government in trouble in the High Court. However, after all of this, could it be Boris Johnson and his partner Carrie Simons penchant for fancy furniture that finally starts to unravel his premiership? On the day the Electoral Commission launched a formal investigation into the funding of the Downing Street flat, that's the question we'll be asking this evening. And I'm joined by Dahlia Gabriel. How are you doing, Dahlia? I'm doing good, Michael. How are you doing? Very well. Um, I, I kind of enjoyed PMQs for the first time in a long time today. It was a bit spicier than usual. So we are going to be going through wow, that some is of that. A statement. <laughs> I know. I, I feel ashamed to say that, but it was it was it was juicier than normal. Normally, I I switch off after the first question. Now I feel obligated to watch some of this. You're probably the target audience. Yeah, you're probably exactly. the target. Like, if anyone's gonna enjoy it, it's gonna be you, Michael. <laughs> that's the meanest. That's the meanest thing you've ever said to me, darling. But we'll move on. <laughs> Later in the show, we're going to speak to journalist Amanda Ferguson about the resignation of Arlene Foster. And we'll also discuss the latest controversy surrounding Prince Andrew. It's another pretty outrageous one, I have to say. And to close the show, we'll take a look at a new low on the Joe Rogan show. As ever, um, do please tweet your comments on the hashtag TiskySour. What do you think about the, the discussions we're having, the topics we're covering do let us know. Now, what do we know about Boris Johnson's flat refurbishment and why is this particular topic causing so much controversy right now? Let's go through the first part of that question first. So what we know is that over the course of the pandemic, Boris Johnson and his partner, Carrie Simons, were spending tens of thousands of pounds doing up their Downing Street flat. We also know that at least £58,000 of that was spent by the Conservative Party towards that refurbishment. And this is the most crucial bit, probably. We know the Conservative Party themselves received £58,000 earmarked for the flat from businessman Lord Brownlow. Now, those are the facts as we understand them. Next, the controversy. Why is this controversial? Well, on the most basic level, Every prime minister is entitled to a 30 grand grant to do up Downing Street. And the fact that Boris Johnson and Carrie Simons felt that this wasn't enough and that they'd have to seek outside funding says something um, about their distance from ordinary people, especially at a time when people are really struggling due to the COVID pandemic. More seriously than that, because that wasn't really a surprise to anyone, was it? The fact a businessman appears to have fronted the cost of the refurbishment raises questions about what they might have expected in return. Indeed, this is precisely why renovations of the Downing Street flat are normally publicly funded. We don't like the idea there could be a conflict of interest between a prime minister receiving gifts who is also making policy. Finally, I mean, this is what's really got Boris Johnson into trouble, is the issue of transparency. Now, political donations are allowed, but they're supposed to be declared to the Electoral Commission within a set time period, and this donation wasn't. That's why this morning the Electoral Commission launched that investigation. Now, what has Boris Johnson said about all of this? Not very much. The statement he keeps falling back on is that he has now paid personally for the refurbishment. 
this, I suppose, would say these are now loans instead of donations. That would still need to be declared. So you still have issues there. The other issue which he hasn't answered is when he decided that he would pay these back. From what I understand, he wasn't really planning to pay for this refurbishment until Sky started investigating. Then when the newspapers, when journalists started investigating, that's when he fronted the money. Did he originally intend to pay it back? It's very, very unclear. As I said, all of this is very unclear, but well, unclear in terms of Boris Johnson won't ask any questions about it. I think we're building up quite a concrete picture as to what happened. Keir Starmer today at PMQs tried to pin Johnson down on these facts, though. Could he get anything from him other than I have now paid for the refurbishment? Who initially, and Prime Minister, initially is the key word here, who initially paid for the redecoration of his Downing Street flat? Uh, well, uh, Mr. Speaker, when it comes to misleading Parliament, he may recollect that it was only a few weeks ago uh, that he said uh, that he, sub- he that he didn't oppose this government, uh, this country staying in the uh, leaving the European Medicines Agency. The fact that he was then uh, forced to retract and leaving the European Medicines Agency was absolutely invaluable uh, for our vaccine rollout. And actually, it was just last week. Uh, that he that he said that James Dyson he said that James Dyson was a, f- a personal friend of mine uh, a fact that James Dyson was corrected uh, in the newspaper this morning uh, as for as for the the the, le- the latest stuff that he's uh, that he's bringing up he should know that I paid for uh, Downing Street refurbishment personally uh, Mr Speaker and I can contra- I contrast it uh, I contrast it uh, any 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 further declaration that I have to. Uh, make I will, uh, if if any, will, I will be advised upon uh, by Lord Guys. But if he talks about housing costs, uh, Mr. Speaker, then the people of this country can make their own decision in just eight days' time. Uh, because on average, Labour councils charge you ninety-three pounds more in Bandy uh, than Conservative councils, and Liberal Democrat councils charge you one hundred and twenty pounds more. That I think is the issue. That I think is the issue upon which the British people would like him to focus. So it's very clear what happened there. Keir Starmer knew that Boris Johnson was going to say, I've covered the cost of the flat renovation. And that's why he asked the question, who originally paid for the flat renovation? Who originally paid for it? He asked that in a very clear way. And Boris Johnson basically ignored the question and changed the subject. Um, That will be a running theme. Starmer had another go. Mr. Speaker, normally when people don't want to incriminate themselves, they go, no comment. Let me ask this. Let me give, well, let, let's, let's explore this bit further, Prime Minister. Let's ask it a different way. Either, this is the initial invoice, Prime Minister, initial invoice, either the taxpayer paid the initial invoice, or it was the Conservative Party, or it was a private donor, or it was the Prime Minister. So I'm making it easy for the Prime Minister. It's now multiple choice. There are only four options. It should be easier than finding the chatty rat, Mr Speaker. So I asked the Prime Minister again, who paid the initial invoice, initial invoice, Prime Minister, for the redecoration of the Prime Minister's flat, the initial invoice? Prime Minister. Uh, Mr Speaker, I've given him the answer, and the answer is I have, I have covered the costs, and I think most people will find it absolutely bizarre. And, of course, there's an electoral commission uh, invest- investigating this, and I, I can tell him that I've conformed in full with the code of conduct, with uh, and, uh, ministers' ministerial uh, code, and uh, I, uh, officials have been kept, uh, uh, have been advising me throughout this whole thing, but I think people will think it absolutely bizarre that he is focusing on this issue. 
uh, when what people want to know is uh, what plans the Labour government might have uh, to improve uh, the life of people in this country. And let me tell you, if he talks about housing again, uh, we're helping people uh, on the house. I'd rather not spend taxpayers' money, by the way, like the last Labour government, we spent £500,000 uh, of taxpayers' money on the Downing Street flat. I'd rather, if I, I, I would, that, yes they did, yes they did, tarting it up. I, I would much rather, I would much rather help people on the, get on the property ladder, and it's this Conservative government that has built 244,000 homes in the last year, which is a record over 30 years. This is a government that gets on with delivering on the people's priorities while he continually raises, I think, issues that most people would find irrelevant to their concerns. So again, a very, very specific question, a multiple choice question, in fact. And again, um, Boris Johnson changes the subject. Just for some context there, Boris Johnson did mention the Blair and Brown government spent all of this money. They spent more money than me. Um, they were in government for more, more time than him. I'm pretty sure what he's referencing there is the fact that the Labour prime ministers between 1997 and 2010 used up most of um, that, that grant that you get per year, the 30k grant that any prime minister gets to do up Downing Street. So essentially, you know, they did what they were allowed. Boris Johnson seems to have done what he wasn't allowed. That's the difference. Now, I'm going to skip a couple of questions because it does get a little bit repetitive. You can imagine Keir Starmer asking that very specific question, Boris Johnson changing the subject. I do want to show you, though, the last exchange between Starmer and Johnson, because in this one, I mean, Boris Johnson kind of really loses it. Now, you can decide for yourself whether the anger works for the PM. Does it really get his point across or does it make him look a little bit rattled? Mr Speaker, don't the British people deserve a Prime Minister they can trust and a government that isn't mired in sleaze, cronyism and scandal? Yeah. Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, last week he came to this chamber and he attacked me for talking to James Dyson about ventilators, where we're now sending ventilators to help the people of India. And the following day, the following day, Mr Speaker, uh, the Labour front bench said that any Prime Minister in my position would have done exactly the same thing. It wasn't only a few months ago that they were actually attacking Kate Bingham, as saying she was a crony when she helped to set up the vaccine task force that delivered millions of vaccines for the people of this country. Mr. Speaker, is helping us to get out of the pandemic. This is a government that is getting on with delivering on the people's priorities. We're rolling out many more nurses, 10,000 more nurses in the NHS now than there were this time last year. 8,771 more police officers on our streets now than there were when I was elected, including tougher sentences, Mr. Speaker, for serious sexual and violent criminals, which he opposed, Mr. Speaker. We're getting on. And by, and by the way, I, I forgot to mention it. I forgot to mention it. Last night, our, our friends in, in, in the European Union voted to approve our Brexit deal, which he, which he opposed, and which enables us not just to take back control of our borders, Mr. Speaker, but to deliver free, which it does, which he fervently opposed, enabling us, enabling us, amongst other things, to deal with such threats as the European Super League, uh, Mr. Speaker, but it enables us to deliver free ports in places like Teesside, and above all, taking back control of our country has allowed us to deliver the fastest vaccine rollout in Europe, as he well knows, Mr. Speaker, which would not have been possible, which would not have been possible if we'd stayed in the European Medicines Agency, which he voted for. Mr. Speaker, week after week, the people of this country can see the difference between a Labour Party that twists and turns with the wind that thinks of nothing except playing political games, whereas this party gets on with delivering on the people's priorities, and I hope that people will vote Conservative on May the 6th. 
Very um, heated. Um, don't worry, that's the last clip I'm going to show you of Gear Starmer and Boris Johnson. No more dud gags. Dahlia, I want your thoughts on this controversy. And first of all, I suppose, what did you make of that exchange at PMQs? Was that Boris Johnson coming out fighting and you know showing that he cares about the issues that the public cares about? Or was that him looking you know, rattled? He's normally quite relaxed in those situations. Was the fact he got so angry and pointy showing that you know there's a real issue he's worried about here? I mean, I think that it was probably the best kind of performance he could have done given, you know, just how kind of egregious and how much the press is sort of turning on him. And I think, you know, that question of is this going to have an impact on on the public? It's very difficult to say because Boris Johnson is Teflon. Um, and if the public does care, it won't be because this is necessarily worse than anything that he's already done, but it will be because the public are being encouraged or allowed to care um, by the press. So we're seeing, you know, some kind of dissent amongst sections of the right wing press who probably feel that, you know, a genuine threat like Corbynism or something is is far away enough that they can go back to sort of this power play of picking their guy in the White, in the, the White House in Downing Street. But I also think that that Teflon ability, you know, to kind of persevere and, 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 retain his popularity throughout crisis after crisis is part of that cult of personality that Johnson has cultivated, where he was basically able to sort of caricature himself as, you know, old money, eaten, educated figure, harking back to like the colonial era. And it allows him to be unaccountable because it allows him to be egregious in plain sight. And that was obviously, you know, partly cultivated by the media. So there's a kind of contradiction that's emerging between that and the media going after him now. But this is, I think, and, you know, to kind of like come back out of this, you know, to look at this as such a kind of explicit toffiness. Like, I think that the thing that is so, the thing that is grabbing the headlines is, you know, Carrie Simmons referring to John Lewis as like, as if it's like kind of low class tat or whatever. And, the key, what what is key to what this is telling me is that you know this is the effective face of right wing governance right now. Um, in this book that I recently co-authored with um, a bunch of amazing scholars, um, Empire's Endgame, we talk about this uncanny rise of the buffoonish leader as the new face of sort of right wing governance, um, and we see it in Boris's like dishevelled hair, his sort of so-called gaffes, his his bra- the brazenness with which he conducts himself and you know his complete disinterest in respectability we saw we saw similarly in Donald Trump we see similarly in Modi and Duterte this kind of very clownish model of right-wing authoritarianism essentially that's very different to the conservatism of you know Theresa May and David Cameron as destructive as those forms of, de- of conservatism were and that cultivation of buffoonishness, it kind of, it's effective because it kind of captures or signals this dissatisfaction with politics as usual, with slick politics where people feel like they're kind of being conned or lied to or disrespected. But it allows him to kind of present, which is almost what Keir Starmer represents, it allows him to kind of present himself as this outsider um, to, you know, the political and economic upper class, despite the fact that he's been like marinated in and, you know, reared by that very upper class. But by cultivating that buffoonishness, that disruptiveness, it creates this like strange affinity with the public where there is no actual affinity. And 
that when you read these kind of egregious examples of, you know, that caricature that he's cultivated for himself, I think that there's a, there's a, it, it doesn't stick as much because of this broader context of the grounds on which he was able to cultivate popularity. Not only does that recklessness, I think, embody our desire to kind of just throw a brick into the wall of the establishment as we perceive it. Um, but, you know, I think people accept that level of recklessness because it feels more authentic than the kind of politics that Keir Starmer represents. And, you know, it on some kind of like psychic level, you know, psychological level, it speaks to our desire to sort of destroy or disrupt this incredibly dysfunctional system. What is interesting here and what we might ask is, you know, how come these moments where, as I said, you know, Carrie Simmons is talking about John Lewis as if it's like cheap tat, it both does and doesn't cut through. So it makes people flinch, but it doesn't make them revolt. It, you know, does it make them regret voting for him? Do they feel that, you know, well, at least I'm getting what I voted for. At least it was explicit. At least it was authentic. But what I don't understand, and this is why I'm not sure if this is going to read with the public, if this is going to kind of have an effect on, on public opinion, is that if, you know, the recklessness and lack of discipline that on one level has its appeal, especially in the context of Brexit and, you know, that whole election where, you know, it felt like he was defending a brick being thrown into the establishment. But how that has managed to maintain its appeal at the time of a pandemic when in which a desire to go back to like a predictable and stable normal is at least temporarily heightened and preferred. And that's where I feel like this might not cut through because if it has withstood and survived that, then I think it can survive this. But not to kind of drag on too much, but I think that another reason why he's going to to, to survive this is because that buffoonishness has this incredible power. It generates this expectation of neglect, of chaos, of unaccountability. You know, you can't expect accountability or rationality from a buffoon, from someone that is is so who has lowered those expectations so deeply and in lowering those expectations johnson has been able to have this space to create an entirely avoidable situation where you know we have the highest number of deaths in europe where so many people's lives have been touched negatively by his recklessness but for that situation to be perceived as as unavoidable so you know like it's it's almost like how can we expect something better from someone who is not capable? How can we expect something other than pretentiousness, toughness from someone who mobilized that very pretentious toughness to get elected? And maybe those aren't good things, but at least we're not being fooled or taken for a ride. And it kind of reminded me a lot of, you know, when we were on the doorstep and when we would talk about, you know, the threat that the Tories represent to the NHS and how Corbyn has this program, much of which was highly achievable. It wasn't that radical at all. It was a very standard social democratic manifesto. But what we were told was, we just don't believe that that's what's going to happen. And I always thought to myself, well, surely if someone gave me two options, one option is that someone is definitely going to punch me on the, in the face. The other option is that they might give me a piece of cake or they might just not do anything. I'd pick the cake, the possibility of cake, rather than the certainty of being punched in the face. And yet so many people in the election from chatting on the doorstep where people seemed very aware of the threat that the Tories represented to the NHS, to things that they hold dear, they picked the punch in the face. So should I, you know, this is why I think 
the standard that he set and the model of that buffoonish authority has, in a sense, made him resilient to these kinds of scandals. Talking about cake, I mean, Boris Johnson does promise people cake as well as punching them in the face. Um, anyway, we've been discussing whether or not this is going to cause serious damage to Boris Johnson. Too early to say. One thing we can be certain about is that it's causing a bit of a distraction that Boris's ministers are not particularly appreciating. Matt Hancock, today at a Downing Street press conference, um, wanted to lead with the news that Britain has ordered 60 million extra Pfizer jabs um, for this autumn, but he found himself very frustrated when all he was asked about was Boris Johnson's flat. If a serving government minister is found to have broken the rules on party funding or even law, should they resign? Well, thanks very much. I know that the Prime Minister answered lots of questions about this in the House of Commons earlier. And given that this is a coronavirus press conference, you won't be surprised that I'm not going to add to the answers the Prime Minister has already given to very extensive questioning. Thanks. Next question is Christian Garamurthy. Last year, Amanda Milling threatened to abolish the Electoral Commission if it didn't do the job that ministers wanted to. As it now investigates the Prime Minister and the Conservative Party, is it doing so with that threat still hanging over it? Um, so I'll answer the first question and then ask JVT to answer the second question. Um, and I think we'll give the third one a miss. Um, as a former culture, as culture secretary, you uh, championed the rights of the free press and the fourth estate to ask difficult questions. Uh, yet this evening, you haven't engaged with those questions from Chris or from Laura around Tory sleaze. Now, what's the point of us being able to ask difficult questions if you're not going to engage with them? Thanks. Well, on the last one, the point of the press conference is the incredibly important progress that we're making about coronavirus, which is without doubt the most important thing facing the country. And if you've listened to the answers, I'm sure you have, from Dr. Kanani and Professor Van Tam, you'll have had one of the most illuminating descriptions of where we're up to scientifically and operationally and clinically uh, that is available. And I'm very, very grateful to the uh, incredible uh, capability of the people who support me uh, as a minister. And as I say, it is important uh, that there are questions, and there were endless questions in the House of Commons earlier uh, on the uh, on the, some of the issues that you raised, and you'll have seen the appointment of Lord Gate earlier. Uh, but um, you've also got to concentrate on the on the big things that really matter. <laughs> So Matt Hancock there, just like Boris Johnson um, at Prime Minister's Questions, refusing to engage directly with the question. To be honest, I can also see why, because anyone who has attempted to directly justify um, Boris Johnson's behaviour when it comes to this flat has come out looking, I mean, like an absolute mug. I mean, really bad. There's no way you could defend this without looking terrible. Um, I've got three examples for you of people who tried. The first one is from a friend of Carrie Simons who was speaking to the Daily Mail. Um, so <laughs> this friend said, the makeover is appropriate for a building of such huge importance. Carrie has exquisite taste. It is classic, stunning, stylish and chic. She should be congratulated, not criticized. No one gets to go in the flat other than the prime minister and his partner. So this idea that we're supposed to be really appreciative that they've spent a lot of money from a businessman and potentially, you know, put the integrity of the prime minister's office in question. I mean, although it kind of already was, wasn't it? Um, that we're supposed to be appreciative oh, because the sofa looked great. I mean, I don't know what planet this person lives on. 
in terms of what planets people live on, the next one's even worse, actually. The next is Sarah Vine. She is a Daily Mail columnist and wife of Michael Gove. Here she is speaking to Radio 4 this morning. Well, the thing about the whole number 10 um, refurbishment thing is that is that the Prime Minister can't be expected to live in a skip he has to live he has to live in a certain at a certain you know to a certain standard and the problem with all of these political things like this is that no one is ever prepared to bite the bullet no one is, is ever prepared to say look you know this building does need to be maintained there do need to be decent furnishings we do need to have a fund that pays for it let's just do it he can't live in a skip. He got 30 grand to do up a flat that was already pretty nice. It was already lived in by a prime minister. They spent 800 quid on each roll of, of wallpaper. So the idea that the alternative would be a skip is a bit much. That's also the kind of, it's the kind of comment from an outrider that you'd think, oh, they have nothing to do with the government. So, you know, this is just someone chatting shit. You shouldn't really associate that with the people they're talking about, the, the actions they're justifying. She's married to Michael Gove. So, I mean, this is someone with close connections to the story at hand here. I mean, also that comment about the skip has to be taken in conjunction with Carrie Simon's comment to Tatler um, of all magazines that the flat was a John Lewis nightmare, which um, many people have taken offence at. Um, my final example of someone making a fool of themselves defending this sorry state of affairs is Nadine Doris, who's a health minister, um, and she doesn't understand how corruption works. So quote tweeting, question from Andrew Pierce, who's a Daily Mail journalist about the money that went on on the flat. Nadine Doris says, you can legitimately ask, was taxpayers money used? Beyond that, it's absolutely none of your business. And the answer, of course, is no. So when it comes to how the Prime Minister paid for the flat, unless it was taxpayers money, it's nobody's business. Now, I don't know if she's you know, playing stupid or if she just is, because th the point of corruption where this is something that we're we're concerned about is not that it's necessarily going to be taxpayers money on the line although obviously when it comes to cash for favors it often seemed to be but it's more that you can buy access to the government and then ultimately you get contracts right so so taxpayers money will be going out thanks to this and actually way more than the cost of a refurbishment because you give fifty-eight thousand pounds for a refurbishment who knows how many billions of pounds you might get to produce masks that don't particularly work anyway this is a government minister and this is I suppose, the, the status um, of, of their arguments when it comes to this. Um, finally, let's quickly go through um, the issue of what is going to happen next. Dahlia's talked a lot about whether or not there will be consequences here in terms of public opinion. Um, I think that's still up in the air. It's kind of too early to say, really. And um, when it comes to what the formal investigations will um, imply, um, so the first um, is the one by the Electoral Commission. So I said there are a number of investigations. The first is, is the Electoral Commission. Um, this is a genuinely independent body, so it's not particularly toothless. And they decide if a law has been broken. We can look at their statement from today. Um, so they released a statement. We have been in contact with the Conservative Party since late March and have conducted an assessment of the information they have provided us. We are now satisfied that there are reasonable grounds to suspect that an offence or offences may have occurred. We will therefore continue this work as a formal investigation to establish whether this is the case. The investigation will determine whether any transactions relating to the works on 11 Downing Street fall within the regime regulated by the Commission and whether such funding was reported as required. So you can see that the Electoral Commission, that investigation should have some teeth there questioning whether the law was broken, but that's an investigation into the Conservative Party, not the Prime Minister per se. The maximum sanction they can impose is a £20,000 fine. They don't get to decide if a Prime Minister should resign.
The other type of investigation is into whether or not Boris Johnson broke the ministerial code. Um, so this isn't about the law. This is about a code um, that ministers are supposed to follow. If they break it, they're supposed to resign. So this could have more bite. Um, the problem here is we expect that to be run by an independent advisor or a so-called independent advisor on ministerial standards who just so happened to be employed today um, by Boris Johnson. Downing Street has also made it clear that even if this person they employed today to run the investigation finds Boris Johnson guilty, Boris Johnson will retain the right to overrule him, which led to um, this quite entertaining headline in the mirror today. Boris Johnson will decide himself if he broke rules over flat refurbishments. There will also be one more investigation as to whether or not he broke MP codes. Um, so did he live up to the standards of an MP? That has um, an independent investigator who, again, could, you know, they, they could genuinely be independent. I don't think they're employed by Boris Johnson. She's called Catherine Stone, um, the Parliamentary Standards Commissioner. But for that to have any serious consequences, there'd need to be a vote among MPs. And I don't think Tory MPs are about to vote that Boris Johnson should resign. So these investigations could be significant in terms of the facts they bring to light. But it is ultimately going to be the public that decide on this one. Quite frankly, I think that's correct. I don't think we should have bureaucrats that can make prime ministers resign. I think they're democratically elected. They should put into light the situation that happened and then the public can decide. Obviously, if it's a law, that's different. But this is if it's codes, to me, that, that kind of makes sense. So we will see. We're going to go on to our next story. Arlene Foster today announced she will be resigning as leader of the DUP, as well as stepping down from her role as First Minister of Northern Ireland. Her resignation comes after a revolt in her party with a majority of her colleagues in Stormont and MPs in Westminster signing a letter calling for her to stand down. Now, this was the end of her statement released this afternoon announcing her resignation. For almost five and a half years, I have been incredibly humbled to have the, had the opportunity to lead the Democratic Unionist Party. I have sought to lead the party and Northern Ireland away from division and towards a better path. There are people in Northern Ireland with a British identity. Others are Irish. Others are Northern Irish. Others are a mixture of all three and some are new and emerging. We must all learn to be generous to each other, to live together and to share this wonderful country. The future of unionism and Northern Ireland will not be found in division. It will only be found in sharing this place we are all privileged to call home. Now to discuss why Arlene Foster has resigned and its significance for Northern Ireland, I'm joined by Amanda Ferguson, a writer and broadcaster based in Belfast. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. To begin with, I suppose, the basic question, why has Arlene Foster resigned right now? Why was there this revolt within her party? It's been bubbling for quite a while and we know that um, you know there have been moves to disrupt her leadership uh, over the last years. But last week in the Assembly, the Ulster Unionist Party brought a motion on banning the so-called uh, gay conversion therapy. Now, the majority of DUP MLAs voted against that, but Arlene Foster and four others abstained. Now, they didn't you know, vote in support of it, they abstained. Um, and that uh, seemed to, to cause some of the more uh, evangelical elements within uh, the party membership uh, to, to, to be upset about it. Now, we know that there's a f there were a few letters uh, sort of rolling around the place. Uh, the local media reported um, that constituency associations have been in touch to say that 
they were upset with uh, Arlene's handling of the Brexit protocol of um, you know per being per perceived as being soft on women's rights, uh, which is, is pretty laughable considering what we know uh, about uh, how Northern Ireland women are treated as part of the UK. But that's for, for another time. Um, so that, that came out in the press and then whenever uh, Arlene Foster was on a youth visit, she was at a visit to a youth centre with the education minister, she was asked about, you know, you know, do you have the backing of your party? Um, and she kind of dismissed it as, you know, I've got a job to do, these stories pop up from time to time. Now it then emerged later in the evening that a majority of the MLAs up at Stormont had signed uh, a document, that a document had been distributed to all the MLAs and to the MPs, uh, essentially saying that they indicated their support for a leadership contest. Um, they didn't have confidence uh, in Arlene Foster anymore. So her position became untenable. You know, like as soon as as soon as sort of seventy five percent of your uh, MLAs are, are saying that they don't want you anymore, you know, it, it wasn't going to be long before uh, she was resigning because it just wouldn't have been um, sort of tenable. It wouldn't have been realistic for her to enter into a leadership contest that she was she was never going to win. So she took the decision to announce her departure from politics. Um, she's going to be leaving the, the role of DUP leader and first minister. So the DUP leader element will be on the 28th of May. The first minister by the end of June. So it's now um, up to the party structures to find her replacement or replacements. That's another thing that might be happening instead of one person taking on both roles, it may be split um, across two politicians. And most of the coverage, I mean, the rest of the UK seems to be suggesting that, that Arlene Foster's downfall is, is mainly due to how she played her hand when it came to Brexit. So obviously the DUP were the people who were most responsible for Theresa May's deal falling. Theresa May's deal actually probably would have kept the you know the integrity of the union um, to a much greater degree than Boris Johnson's deal. So the DUP basically have to take some responsibility for the Northern Ireland Protocol. That's now hated by unionists. It is Brexit the big picture here, really? Is, is it her behaviour over Brexit which meant that her leadership became untenable? We know that the DEP were kingmakers at Westminster for a while and they've been accused of squandering the influence that they had um, of, of trying to go for, for a hard Brexit and it backfiring on them. Uh, we know that the, the fingerprints of quite a few senior DUP politicians are all over that. Uh, they reject the idea that Brexit is the problem. They just say it's the protocol uh, that is the problem. And I think that what we've seen is support ebbing away among grassroots, perhaps the more uh, hardline um, elements would be drawn to Jim Allister's traditional unionist voice um, and perhaps the, the more moderate elements uh, of support would be maybe going away to the Alliance Party or maybe to the Ulster Unionist Party. Um, it's hard to tell, but certainly um, it's one that's a contributing factor. You know, it's been a very turbulent uh, tenure. You know, she's been in post for five and a half years. Uh, for three of those years, there was no devolved government at all. Uh, we know that, you know, the Stormont was restored in January of 2020. And then by March, everybody was in lockdown and the focus uh, was on COVID. And then there's the, the disruptive relationship. Uh, between the DUP and Sinn Féin at the top of government. Uh, but certainly I would also add in that there, I think that there is uh, more than a hint of misogyny around all of this, you know, considering that uh, the, the two previous uh, leaders of the Democratic Unionist Party would have been involved in pretty controversial uh, episodes in their time. Uh, they seem to have lasted a lot longer than, than perhaps Arlene has. And it was interesting to note in her um, statement today that she mentioned misogyny, she mentioned the abuse 
uh, that women in, in public places face, you know, including politicians, including pretty much anybody with an opinion, journalists, whoever else. Um, so there's a combination of factors that have fed into this. But one of the problems is going to be that all of the issues that there are around the Brexit protocol, around perceptions that perhaps she's not been tough enough uh, with Westminster uh, over their interventions on abortion rights, um, you know, the LGBT uh, rights element of all this, um, not being t firm enough or tough enough on Sinn Féin. You know, they're not really in the control of the DUP leader to sort of fix those things. And all of the grievances um, that have been there previously will just be waiting for whoever takes over from her. Is it possible now that, I mean, are the DUP in a kind of crisis that they're going to struggle to get out of? I know there are elections to storm on next year. Um, is it possible that Sinn Féin become the largest party and so the next first minister, well, not the next one, because the next first minister will be whoever replaces Marlene Foster as leader, but the, the first minister after the next elections will be from Sinn Féin. Is that, is that a possibility? And what would be the, the implications there for Northern Irish politics? That is indeed a possibility. Like, we know that a lot of people don't realise this, but the First Minister and the Deputy First Minister, are a it's a joint office. One can't exist without the other. That's why uh, the late Martin McGuinness was able to sort of collapse government and that put Ar Arlene out of her, her job at the time. But the, the deputy uh, element is the thing that is psychological within the politics of here. So the DUP often fight elections on, you know, vote for us or it'll be a Sinn Féin First Minister. Now, Northern Ireland's demographics are changing the political landscape changing uh people uh, are, are moving uh, perhaps a little bit more so well some people are moving a little bit more into the middle ground it seems as if we're, we're sort of dividing up into threes the uh, a third of unionists a third of republicans and a third of others now those others do include unionists and republicans as well but uh, there are also people that could be swayed either way so it's, it's a difficult time and i just i just don't think there's been any preparation within unionist leadership to tell people that you know this isn't the northern ireland um, of 100 years ago, you know, this is the centenary of Northern Ireland this year. This isn't the Northern Ireland of 50 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. It's 2021. And she's had to struggle um, within her party. There being elements within her party who are very sort of socially conservative um, and, you know, have particular views on women's rights and LGBT rights. And then there's another perhaps element that are maybe a little bit younger, a bit more progressive. Um, but, you know, you can't, you can't kind of ride two horses. You either have to be one or the other. And if you're not uh, concrete on what you're offering, then you're going to lose support uh, along the way. So, you know, we're, we're facing into the prospect possibly of an early election. You know, uh, you know, it may, it may not last until uh, next year. It really depends what happens. But certainly that is a definite prospect. And, um, you know, even even if, you know, you hear the Sinn Féin uh, Deputy First Minister Michelle O'Neill refer to herself as, as Joint First Minister. Now, that's not the official title, but it is you know, the outworkings of, of the position that's there. But I think psychologically for unionism, it would be difficult for them to not have the, the first minister role, to not be the biggest party. You know, that would certainly be, uh, you know, uh, something new and something that they haven't been prepared for, really. There's the, the there, It really is a sense that all of the sort of changes that are taking place in our society and, you know, being realistic, that some within the leadership of unionism just haven't really grasped that, that it's, it's not a dominant one dominant community over the other any anymore, and I think that that um, is, is tough for some people to deal with. Really interesting stuff, um, Amanda Ferguson. Thank you so much for for coming back on on the show. Super insightful as ever. We're going to go straight on to our next story. The disgraced Prince Andrew is back in the news this week, and he's back in the news for teaming up with a disgraced banker who, like Andrew 
is accused of sexual abuse. Yes, you could not make this story up. Um, it was in the Times this week. They report that last summer, Prince Andrew went into business with former Coots banker Harry Keogh. Now, Coots is a bank used by the very rich, including the royal family, and Keogh has apparently worked as Prince Andrew's private banker for over 20 years. However, this is the important background, Keogh left Coots in 2018 amid claims of sexual harassment from numerous people. Very serious claims. Let's go to the description in the Times of the issue. They write, at Coots, he was accused of touching a woman's groin while demonstrating the site of an injury. His behaviour was said to be so toxic that some female staff refused to work with him. The private bank carried out an investigation in 2015 and the chief executive recommended he leave, according to the Wall Street Journal. It was decided that he should stay, but he was disciplined and eventually resigned in March 2018. Now, we should note a friend of Keogh told the Wall Street Journal that Keogh denies um, the allegations, though he's unable to speak about the matter after signing a non-disclosure agreement with Coots. Now, this is phenomenal, isn't it? Prince Andrew is someone who is currently, you know, he's trying to launder his reputation. We saw him on, on the BBC a couple of weeks ago. We talked about it on the show, talking about the death of his, his, his father. Um, he's, he's saying, I, I should be able to come back into public life because whilst I hung around with, with a paedophile, a convicted paedophile, whilst I hung around with him after he was convicted and whilst I am subject to allegations about sexual abuse of, a, of an underage um, girl, I should be allowed back into public life because, you know, uh, I, I don't know what his explanation is. He still thinks that should be the case. While he is trying to reestablish his reputation, he goes and starts a firm, a business with someone else who has had to leave their job because of very, very widespread, credible allegations of sexual abuse. What is this guy thinking? As I say, you could not make this stuff up. The article has some defences of all of it. None of them are very good, but let's go through them. So on the association with Keogh, the Times explain that the source close to the Duke said the allegations against Keogh don't appear to have been subject to any investigation by law enforcement or independent third parties, and nor have they been tested by due process in a court of law. So saying it's all fine. Um, none of this was investigated by the police. It was only investigated by his workplace where multiple people complained about sexual harassment and he ended up having to leave. Right. It's also similar to Andrew's defense, although one of the reasons he hasn't been questioned by law enforcement is because he's refusing to go over to America. Um, which says a lot about his integrity. Um, let's look at what the company does. Not, not quite as shocking as both of their histories when it comes to sexual abuse, but still unsavory. The company, what it was planning to do um, was to be a vehicle to allow Prince Andrew to secretly invest his money. Um, ultimately, it was supposed to serve as a trust fund for his daughters. Some of the facts about this company, as well as that he was teaming up with an alleged sexual harasser. Um, so first of all, what it would be called. This is funny. So first, we're told the new venture is named Lincelles after the 18th century battle against the French in which the British were commanded by the Duke of York. Now, I love this. I mean, it tells you so much about Prince Andrew's self-perception and the reality. His self-perception is he is someone who's leading troops into battle. He is a really significant guy who's sacrificing for his country and leading men. When in reality, what he's doing is setting up a very secretive company with a fellow alleged sexual harasser to, looks like, 
you know, basically hide his money. Now I'm saying hide his money. Let's go on to the nature of this company, the structure of this company, because we are told it was set up as an unlimited company. And this means that it is not required to file accounts with Companies House or report its profits or income. That's, in fact, why people set up um, these unlimited companies, because they want to be um, shrouded in secrecy. And um, the flip side, why you might say, well, why doesn't everyone set up an unlimited company? No one wants to be transparent. The reason is there are some downsides, which is that in a limited company, which is a limited liability company, if you get into lots of debt, that debt doesn't accrue to you personally. If you're a director, it accrues to the company. So the company goes bankrupt. That doesn't mean you necessarily will. In an unlimited company, if the company goes bankrupt, you go bankrupt. There's no limited liability. But the upside um, is that you get to keep it all secret. Um, for some more details on what this means and what an unlimited company means, we can go to Ella Leonard, um, who is a corporate expert at the law firm Fladgate. And she told The Times, as the name suggests, the shareholders of an unlimited company are liable if it cannot pay its debts should it have to be wound up. The main benefits of an unlimited company are reduced disclosure obligations. Unlimited companies are usually exempt from delivering annual accounts to companies' house and filing notifications that new shares have been issued, as well as having some greater flexibility in returning invested cash to shareholders. It is fair to say that we do not come across unlimited companies that often precisely because of the shareholder liability point, and so there must be a very specific reason for using one. Um, it's worth noting David Cameron, currently embroiled in the Green Seal scandal, also controls one of these secretive companies, as does Andrew Mills, who is a former government advisor. Um, who last year brokered a PPE deal with the government worth £250 million. Who are the people that govern us? This is so depressing. The question is, why do we allow these things? But we don't have that much of a choice, do we? I mean, the whole point of being a royal is that you literally answer to no one. Um, and nobody encapsulates that better than Prince Andrew. And I actually looked this up. So the monarch, so in this case, the queen, can't actually ever be arrested or prosecuted for anything um, because of sovereign immunity. And no other uh, member of the royal family can be arrested if they are in her presence or within the surroundings of a royal palace. Um, in 2002, Princess Anne was fined £500 and had to pay compensation to a family when her dog attacked a child. And that's the first member of the royal family to ever plead guilty to a criminal offence. Now, I know when it comes to this uh, unlimited company, we're not dealing with a criminal offence. Um, it's terrible, but it's legal. But it kind of gives you an understanding of how this class operates, right? Like, it's essentially above the law. It's And so, you know, why would he not engage in beneficial and lucrative behavior and make decisions that are bad form? You know, they all he risks is embarrassment. And I think, you know, Andrew, Andrew has proved himself Im immune to that, um, immune to feeling embarrassed or ashamed. Um, so, you know, when we create a system of people who are by almost by definition unaccountable, then we can't really act surprised when they behave in a messy way. But I think for me, you know, and trying to follow the money of rich people is or understand why they do like what kind of company is for what and all of that. It's it's like it makes me feel it gives me a stomach ulcer because it's deliberately difficult to understand. Right. But what stood out for me here mm -hmm. was, you know, the fact that once again, we see this like embeddedness of shadow finance, of shadow banking in the operation of our economic and political 
systems. You know, the whole point of this company that he set up is to be able to move money around, to invest without any kind of public scrutiny, without any scrutiny by by regulatory bodies. And that fits in, that's an incredibly important part of our economy. Like that is an integral part of our economy. Um, And it also fits into the role that Britain plays in the world. Like a lot of the, um, you know, this facilitating of offshoring, of concealment, of secrecy, of, of, you know, of all of these these kind of things that have come to define actually the the majority of banking activity, um, you know they have their legacies in empire. A lot of the territories that are still under British control, places like the British Virgin Islands, are you know tax offshore tax havens, and a lot of global financial markets operate in that unregulated space, which relies on secrecy, informality, untraceability. So. That is the norm. It's not the exception. And I think, you know, can we even call it corruption when that is actually the backbone of how our economic system is set up? When you look at the concept of an unlimited company, the only person who's going to set up an unlimited company is someone who's rich enough to be liable in the case of, you know, bankruptcy. So it is literally a mechanism that is exclusively for only the very, very, very rich to evade any kind of public scrutiny or transparency. And so I think we actually miss a trick when we talk about this. And I and I actually, you know, think the same thing about how we talk about Tory chumocracy and, you know, co- even calling it corruption. I think that you can't call something corruption when it is the embedded logic of the state and the economic system. So I think we miss a trick, actually, when we act as if Andrew, in this particular case, is doing something particularly egregious, because actually this kind of behavior represents the majority of financial activity. Um, so the question isn't, why do we let it happen in the case of Andrew? The question is, why do we let it happen at all? I take your point. It might not be particularly exceptionally egregious, but I think he is exceptionally incompetent. So I used the past tense in some of that, the first part of that segment, because it turns out that after taking the reputational hit of setting up a company with an alleged sexual harasser, this firm named after a Duke of York, Duke of York, a previous Duke of York, or a battle that a previous Duke of York fought in, um, it has never in fact channeled any of Prince Andrew's investments. Um, This was a story in The Telegraph, which suggests that after making this very, very secretive company with this very, very dodgy guy, um, Prince Andrew was, uh, was, was, was told this would be inappropriate. And so it has never made any investment. So he's taken this hit and it's flopped. So the Telegraph write, the Duke was advised that while such ventures are fairly standard for ultra high net worth individuals, they were not appropriate for a member of the royal family. As such, the company was abandoned and has never been used. I suppose that this is a guy who thought that a good defence was that he was eating at Pizza Express when he was asked um, about a picture of him with an underage girl who had accused him of sexual abuse. So, you know, the fact that he starts a company without having thought, oh, maybe it'd look a bit dodgy if I do this, and then having to shut it down before it does anything is not particularly surprising. Um, I do want to return to one thing in this Times piece as well, because it is worth pointing out, this isn't the only project Andrew has had to abandon. Now, giving background to another man who was involved in the Duke's unlimited company, the Times wrote... Lincell's sole director is Dominic Hampshire, the secretary of the Quad Centenary Club, which was set up to raise funds for the Royal Blackheath Golf Club in London, and which counts the Duke as its chairman. 
Hampshire, who describes himself as a golf professional on Compass House filings, was also involved in the Duke of York Young Champions Trophy, a golf tournament for under-18s, which was axed after the Epstein scandal. So the guy who ran Prince Andrew's secretive firm, so he was the director. Prince Andrew was a controller alongside this guy from Coots Bank. Um, He was told he had to close it down because it looked bad for the royals. This same guy also ran a young champion's trophy, which had to be shut down after Andrew was found to have close associations with a paedophile. Why would you keep entering into projects with this guy? The first one you have to shut down because he's been hanging out with a pedo and this is a competition for young people. The second time you you agree to be the director of this limited company, unlimited company, sorry, which is going to be investing his money for his kids, which then has to be shut down because Prince Andrew was such an idiot. He didn't ask anyone who would tell him that actually, if you're in this, you know, quite delicate constitutional arrangement where the royals are trying to retain their legitimacy, you probably shouldn't set up secretive com- companies, you know, as if you're just any old international financier who wasn't paid for by the taxpayer. Dahlia, I want your final comment on this. Why does anyone associate with this man? I think it it just comes back to he doesn't feel shame. He doesn't feel embarrassment. In fact, I'm sure that Prince Andrew feels deeply victimised by this entire, by, by everything that has happened over the past several years. He's thinking, I'm just doing what everyone else does you know everyone else in my class and and I both mean that in terms of you know this kind of shadow financing shadow financing stuff I also mean it in the harassment of underage women like you know and thinking why am I the one who's getting the flack for this you know so I think that that it's it's a combination of being you know shielded from consequence by virtue of his position uh, and that kind of creating delusion and, and creating his own sense of his own, you know, which we can see in the naming of his company. But it's also a sense of I am sure that he has created this massive victim narrative for himself. And that's what helps him sleep at night. You've got it there. I would say he should hire you as a therapist, but you wouldn't want to do that job. <laughs> and before we go on to our final story, thank you so much for the super chats tonight. And thank you for anyone who is a regular donor to Navara Media com you are what keeps um, the organization ticking over we really do appreciate it um, if you haven't already do go to navaramedia.com forward slash support and as you know um, we we ideally ask for the equivalent of one hour's wage a month so we can keep growing let's go to our final story of the evening joe rogan is the world's most successful podcaster which you might think should mean he'd be careful about what he says about something as important as vaccines in the middle of a pandemic. Unfortunately, he's not. And people say, do you think it's safe to get vaccinated? I've said, yeah, I think for the most part, it's safe to get vaccinated. I do. I do. But if you're like 21 years old and you say to me, should I get vaccinated? I I go, no. Are you healthy? Are you a healthy person? Like, look, don't do anything stupid, but you should take care of yourself. You yeah. should, if you're, if you're a healthy person and you're exercising all the time and you're young and you're eating well, and like, I don't think you need to worry about this. This is a really, really bad argument. And it's a really bad argument for a simple reason, which is that getting vaccinated isn't just about you. You know, getting vaccinated doesn't just protect the person who gets vaccinated. It also protects everyone around you, because as we know, getting vaccinated reduces transmission. There are some people who can't get vaccinated. Even if you personally are not at a great risk from COVID-19, then 
it's the right thing to do to get vaccinated because that will protect people who can't get vaccinated, right? And it means that we can all go back to normal because we get herd immunity. We won't have the virus you know, moving around anymore. I mean, he just didn't think of that. I mean, you have so much responsibility if you're hosting one of the world's most successful podcasts. I mean, he just didn't, didn't mention it to his audience. Let's look at a bit more of that discussion. That was quite a short clip, and it's, it's interesting where this conversation goes. But there's a lot of jobs that will tell you you need to have this. Well, that's what's but starting to happen now. People are worried about them doing it for their children. And we talked about this earlier, yeah. there's the, 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 that you might have to have your, your children vaccinated. And, you know, I can tell you as someone who's both, both my children got the, va the, the virus, it was nothing. I mean, I hate to say that if someone's children died from this, I'm very sorry that that happened. I'm not... I'm not in any way diminishing that, but I'm saying the personal experience that my children had with COVID was nothing. One of the kids had a headache. The other one didn't feel good for a couple of days. Yeah. Like maybe, I mean, not feel good. Like, mm, like no, no big deal. No coughing, right. no, no, no achy, no, like in agony. There was none of that. It was very mild. It was, it was akin to them getting a cold. Again, this is a conversation that it is, Fair enough to have in a pub. You know, it's a conversation. Not everyone has to be an expert on COVID-19. You know, and everything he's saying there is you know, reasonable. He's saying kids, yes, they are not at a big risk from COVID-19. Absolutely not. Which is why when we discuss vaccinating kids, we're not talking about their safety. We're talking about the safety of society as a whole. It's also important to mention it. I, I'm, I don't necessarily think we should vaccinate kids i don't know which which way we we should we should do this um i think there will be serious discussions among scientists at this point maybe we'll get herd immunity anyway so we don't really need to if we get herd immunity at 80 percent of the population then we might not have to um vaccinate under under 16 so there's a serious discussion to be had there but the framing of that conversation by joe rogan is just misleading his audience because he is continuing with this frame which is to say that the only reason you might get vaccinated is to protect yourself there's no other possible logic which is is just a misrepresentation of the fact and it's also an incredibly dangerous misrepresentation of the fact because he has lots of young people who watch that show and we need those young people to get vaccinated because that helps us get herd immunity it means we can go back to normal it means that people who the vaccine wasn't very effective on um will will be safe because we we as a society don't have much covid moving around and even though he's got millions and millions of listeners he doesn't have to understand the complexities of covid this is basic basic stuff if you were any kind of journalist you have a responsibility to learn this basic basic stuff especially if you host the world's most successful podcast it's just really it's stupid and it's incredibly incredibly irresponsible let's look at one final clip of this discussion and this is where it gets i mean just quite frankly ridiculous yeah and you can have this thing where it's like you were saying this virtue signaling and this kind of like theatrical display of i get the vaccine what a good person i am i care about everyone but you're like look and my, my daughter's a lot younger than your kids but i'm like yeah i'm not injecting my daughter with something to fucking virtue signal right. like i'm not doing that right if there's something that she's of no risk statistically has no risk from right. i'm sorry i'm not taking any experiment uh, on her in that and that's that's my attitude but it's it. amazing that that's controversial yeah that even saying that i'm not going to inject my child with the vaccine is controversial yeah it's crazy because again we are not talking about even the flu that we just found out killed twenty two thousand people last year we're not talking about that right we're talking about something that is not 
statistically dangerous for children. But yeah. yet people still want you to get your child vaccinated, which is crazy to me. Yeah. Like you should be vaccinated if you are vulnerable. You should be vaccinated if you are vulnerable. Again, completely. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sounding like a broken record now, but it's an important point. Getting vaccinated isn't just for you. It's for society. It's for people more vulnerable than yourselves. The thing that really struck out here was this use of the term virtue signaling. Now, I'm not someone actually who says, oh, virtue signaling is a meaningless term. I think people do virtue signal. And I think there are some big examples of virtue signaling, especially from big corporations. So, for example, you might see Nike tweet, you know, hashtag Black Lives Matter. That's virtue signaling because there are serious, significant things that Nike could do to, you know, influence policy and to materially improve the condition of, of, of black and brown people in the world. For example, they could pay decent wages in all of their factories around the world. That would be something which would have a material impact, but it would cost them, right? So instead, what they decide to do to prove they're one of the good guys is they tweet a statement which doesn't cost them anything, which has no consequence, but just signals they are virtuous. That's virtue signaling. Now, vaccinating your kids, and again, it, it's not clear we need to do this. It will become apparent, will we'll, we'll be advised by the various um, health bodies whether or not we should do it. But they are not going to advise us on the basis of, oh, we should vaccinate them because vaccinating people has now become a sort of trend, makes you look good. It will be because they have assessed that this is a necessary thing for us to do to stop the transmission of COVID-19 to more vulnerable people. It's why we give, or one of the reasons why we give kids the flu jab. It turns out you know, flu is actually a bit more dangerous than COVID-19 for young people. But one of the big reasons, and you know, the NHS are explicit about this, that we give the flu jab to kids is because they tend to be super spreaders when it comes to spreading flu to older people, more vulnerable people. So again, a completely misinformed, lazy discussion about probably, you know, the most serious topic. And it's the most serious topic because our actions matter. So if you're telling that to your, you know, millions of people audience, you can, you know, quite concretely undermine the effort to move beyond this pandemic. I mean, are these people trying to keep me locked in my house forever? Like, I'm so <laughs> mad. It's just, let, I like, let me be released and stop like stop slowing it down with this idiocy obviously entirely egregious completely scientifically illiterate not only because not only the idea that you know the only reason you get vaccinated is for yourself as you've know as you as you've noticed but also firstly that whole idea of that exercising a lot can help <laughs> you prevent get getting yeah impacts from covid like negative impacts from covid can stop you transmitting covid you don't know if you're vulnerable to covid you know that we have so many stories one thing that's so scary about this illness is that there are so many instances of people who consider themselves very healthy who might not know if they have an underlying condition in all these different ways being knocked out by this virus and not to mention and i feel that you know i need to walk around with these discussions with a megaphone just screaming long covid because this is always so missing from the conversation we think okay coronavirus the impact of it is either you know you have like some you have mild symptoms or you even have you know a really bad flu or you're in the icu there's a huge like number of people who sit in the middle of that, who have long COVID or have these unknown long-term effects from coronavirus. You know, we still are, that data is still emerging on what the possible long-term effects can be, even if you make it through the initial illness, completely fine. And I think this is 
partly to do with the fact that in general our, the society, our society doesn't really know how to talk about or engage with chronic illness like we just don't see it um, in our understanding of what it means to be unwell um, and what it means to be sick so you know for me, like for me, my main, as well as, you know, lowering transmission, my main reason why I want to get the vaccine is because I, I'm scared of getting long COVID. I'm scared of being taken out, you know, and not being able to, as many of my friends have who are healthy, who have healthy diets, who are young, who exercise, who, you know, it's been six months and counting and they are still deeply affected. And, you know, I think in the case of the vaccines, you know, there are some cases where I think, you know, vaccine hesitancy is something that should be dealt with sensitively. So, you know, especially in the US, like the long history of black and brown indigenous communities who have been heavily abused and experimented upon by, you know, health, by pharmaceutical industries, by, you know, healthcare institutions, vaccine hesitancy in those communities, you know, I don't think it should be dismissed. I think it should be engaged with um, carefully. And that kind of understanding that a lot of trust needs to be rebuilt there is definitely, you know, so there's not all cases. This case, absolutely egregious, absolutely irresponsible. And also, but it also reflects, and I, I think I talked about this at the very beginning of the pandemic when we had this whole culture war emerging out of masks, um, the whole, you know, when they tried to make masks into a culture war. And it's this idea of, you know, it's my liberty, it's my freedom to not wear a mask if I don't want to, or if I'm not scared. And it's, again, this whole idea of this conception of freedom, this conception of liberty, this conception of being in society that is so individualized. This mentality of I don't owe anyone to any, I don't owe anything to anyone. Um, the mobility of vulnerable people is irrelevant to me. If I'm not vulnerable, I don't have, I'm not accountable for making the world a better place for people who are vulnerable for whatever reason or that my individual behavior is only relevant insofar as it has consequences for me as an individual. And, you know, this is the kind of, um, this is the kind of doctrine that we hear from people like Joe Rogan. It's that like Jordan Peterson style um, kind of thing that, you know, it happens at that kind of podcasting cultural level, but it, it has its knock on effects all the way up into government all the way up into policymaking. We saw an incredible, incredibly slow uptake of masks in the US um, under Donald Trump. And we still are seeing slow uptake of masks in a lot of uh, states that have uh, very right wing governors. Um, so it has real life consequences and it is absolutely irresponsible. It's not a matter of opinion. It is a matter of fact. And it's to, to, to spread a message like this in this moment when we are so close to such a watershed moment and not to say that the vaccine is going to solve everything, but we're so close to things getting a lot better, especially for people who have been shielding for such a long time and who have had to deal with the impacts, the mental health, the physical impacts of that. To roll us back at that point is so deeply, deeply unacceptable. I mean, I think that point you make about individualism of it, they, they can't think of COVID as a collective problem. What I find, I suppose, so interesting in that clip is if, you know, if Joe Rogan had said, look, I get there is some collective benefit for having the vaccine, but I'm a moral individualist. I don't think individuals can have responsibility for wider society. We should be, you know, egoists or whatever. Um, I disagree with him, but at least, you know, it would be a an intellectually informed argument yeah if you are just an egoist if you don't think that individuals have any responsibility to the rest of society yeah if you are 21 don't get vaccinated i mean <laughs> i don't want that to get clipped but if you if you have that really unattractive basically 
moral doctrine, which is to say what I do, you know, I don't care about anyone else's health. You know, then then maybe you won't bother going to the to the chemist. But he's not being honest about that. He's not saying, um, yeah, I, I don't believe in in collective values. I don't believe in having any social responsibility to every, anyone other than myself. And that's why I'm saying this. No, he just, I mean, he basically misrepresents the facts to have an individualistic conclusion. And and that's what I find so distasteful about it. Maybe that's the word to use. Do some basic research, Joe. I host a podcast. It doesn't have as many viewers as your one, but I do some basic research before I go on air, and I don't think that is too much to ask for people, um, is how I would conclude. Dahlia, let's end there. It's been a great show. Very enjoyable as ever. We'll be back on Friday at 7 p.m. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.